Hello, and welcome to IBM Developer. I'm your host, Luke Schantz. In this edition of our Origin Story interview series, I have the pleasure to bring you a conversation with Troy Fisher. He's a member of the X-Force Ethical Hacking Team. Hello, Troy. Thanks for taking the time to talk today. Hi, Luke. So I want to ask you to maybe give yourself a little bit more of an introduction and include what is the X-Force Ethical Hacking Team, because I'm so curious. Sure. So uh, I've been in the security space for uh, close to 20 years now. I have a degree in computer science from the College of New Jersey, uh, which used to be called Trenton State College. And when I started full time, uh, I like to say that information security almost wasn't even a thing that had a name. When I joined the company that I worked for as an intern, and I started as a full time resource, uh, my boss kind of said, I'm, I'm looking for someone to help <laughs> protect the product. Uh, and that sounded really interesting. I had never done anything really like that. Uh, so it sounded like a unique challenge. Uh, so I, I worked at that company for a long time, uh, uh, 13 or 14 years. And I was doing the, the type of work that you might call blue team work. So I was trying to keep the hackers out of that product. Uh, and then I came to IBM and I was doing similar type of work uh, on the Maz360 product. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, I had kind of an unexpected opportunity to join the X-Force Ethical Hacking Team, an internal penetration testing team. Uh, so we focus mainly on the IBM security family of products. Uh, we are IBMers testing IBM products solely. Uh, so that means we get to do a little bit more uh, what we tend to call white box testing. So we get to have an inside look at the box that we're testing at the, the source code uh, so we can try and get a really complete look at any vulnerabilities that might be in that product. Well, it sounds really quite interesting. You're giving a talk uh, at the upcoming Cloud Native Security Conference. Uh, is this what your talk's about uh, or what, what is your talk about? So the talk at the conference is specifically about securing Docker containers. So this is a kind of an opportunity to blend my two lives in security, uh, the things I've learned from penetration testing and the, the type of weaknesses that are somewhat unique to containers and Docker, but then also bringing in the, the work that I did in securing things to help people understand what the, the best practices are and how that they can make their Docker containers as secure as possible. So containers are these isolated processes. Does that make them inherently more secure, or does that open up vulnerabilities that one wouldn't have thought about? It's a little of both. I'm not sure how up to speed the listener would be on the differences between containers and virtual machines. Um, they are quite similar in practice, uh, but underneath the hood, so to speak, the containers share a lot of the resources of the host operating system. So there are some unique challenges. Um, but in a lot of regards, if you treat them like virtual machines and make sure you keep them up to date, uh, you're already getting a lot of the work done. Um, but because of the way containers run and the way their life cycle is managed, sometimes it's easy to overlook that. Let me ask you this. Part of what we're trying to do with the origin story series is show developers the path that, that you know people who are established and successful in their careers have taken. And I'd like to rewind all the way back. What 
were some of the initial sparks? Like maybe it was video games or just a math class or that ham radio. What initially started you on the path that led you where to you are today? You know, that's a really interesting question. Um, that's something that I've thought about a lot of times over the years. And you mentioned video games in your question. And I, a lot of times when I'm doing my day-to-day job as a penetration tester, I kind of feel like I'm playing the video games that I loved. And it's kind of a, a very specific genre of video games. Like if you asked me to list my favorite ones, I would tell you Myst, Riven, the Portal series, the Talos Principle, the Witness, um, games that would sort of be described as puzzle games, but they're not just mindlessly solving puzzles. They almost always have some sort of parallel thinking or, uh, you know, kind of thinking outside the box in order to solve the problems. The Talos Principle is a favorite in particular because uh, you can cheat the puzzles and you actually need to cheat some of the puzzles if you want to fully complete the game. So that really like scratches the hacking itch. That is interesting. It reminds me of what uh, in Star Trek there was, what was it like the, the Kobayashi Maru, which was you basically had to cheat to, in order to beat this puzzle, right? Yep. Yeah, it feels a lot like that. And it's, so I feel like, you know, playing those games since I was six, seven, eight years old, uh, I don't know if it got me into the the hacker mindset, so to speak, at an early age, or if it's just a natural tendency that I always had and playing those games exercised it. You mentioned uh, where you went to college, but was it like a clear path? Like, hey, you were in the, the, the stems the whole way, or is it something that you sort of got into the actual like academics and, and job world of it later? It was kind of a little of both. My other kind of biggest interest in life is is music and theater and performing. So I, I briefly entertained studying musical theater. Um, but after some, some frank talks with my parents, uh, you know, I, I, I came to the realization that I can always do theater uh, on my own. And that, you know, at the time in the late 90s, uh, studying computer science was seen as a, a ticket to a successful career. Um, so that that's the decision I made. And I still do uh, theater to this day. And here I am still still doing uh, computers and hacking for my profession. So I kind of have the best of both worlds. That's really interesting. I think we've, we've have some similarities in our background. I, I also worked in uh, theater. Um, my family actually used to be in entertainment lighting and I, and I worked in theater and then later I became a, a stage designer and I did stuff like Blue Man Group and then I got into like activations. But uh, it's, it's interesting. I think the, the theater itself too is so many complicated systems and, and teams working together. It's, it's actually not that dissimilar to the, the tech world in many ways. It sure is, yeah. Cool. So let's dig a little bit more into the idea of because you're right, maybe folks weren't you know familiar with containers and 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 VMs and the difference. But also, when I hear the term you know hacker uh, or an ethical hacker specifically, um, I think we could explore that and then getting into some of these things you talked about. Like you know, I, I've heard of penetration testing, but uh, you know, I think maybe a more Hollywood version of it or something, but like what, what, where the rubber hits the road, what, what is an ethical, ethical hacker and what are these processes you do? Cause there's, uh, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of, 
kind of baggage associated with the word hacker, um, just because when that term came to be, uh, which was you know a bunch of dudes uh, back at MIT who were running a model railroading club, and they figured out a way to use off-the-shelf telephone equipment to manage the railroad switches, and and they called that hacking the equipment. It's sort of come to mean someone who you know steals your password or installs ransomware on your computer. That's a hacker, uh, but really, it's it's supposed to be a, a neutral term with regards to your ethics, um, and it just hasn't come that way. So, so now we call ourselves ethical hackers because we're doing it specifically with permission. Um, you know, we always make sure we nail down exactly what systems we're testing, what days we're testing it what types of tests that we're going to do. Um, we come to an agreement with our, our customer, so to speak, in advance. Uh, and that way we're, that, that's sort of where the ethicalness comes into play. Um, as for what hacking is specifically, I, I actually have this. This is my favorite demo. Um, this is my, you know, a regular off-the-shelf Rubik's Cube. So when I have to do a demo, uh, if I'm doing like a, a career day or something for, for students, they always want to see a live demo of hacking, but that just looks like me sitting in front of a computer. Like there's, there's nothing interesting to see there. So the way I describe it is if you imagine that this is a computer system, the first thing I need to do is understand how the computer system works. So I, you know, I explore it. I figure out these, these pieces turn different ways. Um, I think everybody knows that the goal is to get all the colors to match up. So once I have an understanding of what it's supposed to do, I try to figure out what I'm not supposed to do and how it stops me from doing those things. So this is a kind of a new school Rubik's Cube, so you can't, can't peel the stickers off. So that, that old school cheats out. But as I play with it, I don't know how well you can see this on the camera, but the, some of the pieces are a little bit loose. So here's this corner here is a little bit loose. And if I pull it up, I don't know how well the camera will see this. I can just turn it in place. So now the green that was up here is on this side. And so in doing that, I got the system to do something that it was not intended to do. And that is sort of the very fundamental definition of a hack. Uh, just taking any system and making it work in a way that the developer of the system did not intend for it to work. So. Sometimes that involve like the the result of that is what you think of as a hack, where we you know we take control of the system or we steal data from it. Uh, but it's at its very core, what I try to do all day long is figure out what I can do to these systems uh, that I'm not supposed to be able to do. What it brings to mind right away is even so many of the things that then become established seems like they they started off as hacks, right? Like even. Even the idea of containerization, right? It, I don't think that was the initial intention of those processes in, in Linux to be able for containers to exist, but they do now, and now it's like a mainstream thing. Yeah, you could, you could totally see the origin of that being in some kind of a hack. Absolutely. I didn't know that backstory about the model railroads. So I really like that. <laughs> Fascinating. So you're also a musician. Correct. What, uh, what instruments do you play? Uh, so I played saxophone most of my life, um, uh, but in the last few years, I've also been picking up guitar and ukulele, uh, mainly because you can't really sing and play saxophone at the same time. 
you mentioned too that you do talks and education. So you do community outreach and, and you're, you're doing talks for students and these sorts of things as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess it sort of falls to me by default. Uh, as, as you might imagine, a lot of people who work in this space aren't super comfortable in front of an audience. Uh, but being a, a performer myself, I, I'm quite comfortable in front of an audience. So I often uh, find myself stepping up to the plate. I, Kind of got my start just doing uh, career day at my kids' schools, teaching uh, anywhere from third grade through high school um, about penetration testing, hacking, uh, and the, the various careers that are available in security, uh, which is a pretty wide field to begin with. Um, and then uh, starting this year, uh, I, I did a, a talk. We have a series uh, in IBM uh, it's a, it's an internal series called Think Like a Hacker, and uh, I I participated uh, in the most recent installment of that. I touched briefly on securing containers in that talk, um, and so I, I was asked to sort of develop that talk into something more full scale for the upcoming conference. Do you still use the the Rubik's cube in that talk, or do you you put the side for that one? I probably won't use the Ruby's cube in that talk. It's a little bit uh, elementary, hopefully for for this crowd. Um, but I I bring up the uh, the Ruby's cube demo uh, routinely for career days. Uh, we also have a program called Cyber Day for Girls, uh, where people from IBM Security uh, will host middle school aged uh, young women and teach them about opportunities in in computer security. So I often bring that demo up. So let me ask you, since, since you've been in security for, you know, the, the last 20 years, how have you seen this change, especially moving into this hybrid multi-cloud world? How has, how has the face of, of security changed? Well, it's, you know, it's, like I said, kind of a, something that almost didn't have a name when I started. Um, and everyone was just feeling it out as they went. So it's, it's kind of amazing to think of the way it's changed in uh, kind of a relatively short time. When I started 20 years ago, um, we sort of focused almost entirely on securing the perimeter. So you, you made sure you had a firewall and that only let through the things that you wanted to let through. And that was supposed to keep you safe enough. Uh, but of course the hackers are always thinking of the, the next big attack um, so they would figure out ways to piggyback through the firewall on the traffic that you were allowing, for example. Um, so then we had to come up with the the technique that we call defense in depth. So then you have things at different layers. And you, I don't know, it's, it's just grown uh, in so many different ways. Um, and then when you move up to, to cloud, suddenly it brings a, a whole extra dimension because you're no longer in control of the, the data. Uh, you have to entrust that to someone else. So, uh, uh, you know, IBM as the, the host of the hybrid cloud, uh, you know, we're, we, we're storing all this data on behalf of our customers. Um, we have to be really careful about how that data is protected and managed. Um, it almost becomes a bigger worry because it's, it's someone else's stuff now. Uh, it's not just it's not just our own, and with a unlike with a, a an installed on-premises product, 
we can't just say it's up to you, the customer, to secure it properly. It's not our problem and wash our hands of it. We're, we have an ongoing interest in making sure that it stays secure. Something else I wanted to ask you about, I saw in the news just this week that IBM released a homomorphic uh, encryption tool set or, or SDK. And I wondered if you have thoughts on that and how that sort of fits into the landscape. It seems like it's, especially with how distributed applications are now, it seems like it could be pretty useful. Yeah, uh, I was going through that that report a little bit. Um, it's the the concept of homomorphic encryption is is a little bit above my head. Uh, I don't have like a a good sense for the the mathematics and the the mechanics involved. I really need to study it, but it sounds like a a really fascinating technology. Well, and especially now because of this, you know, so many mobile applications, and then the hybrid multi cloud where it's spanning, you know, everything from on prem to cloud to, you know devices, it's, uh, there's such an attack surface now, right? It's like, it used to just be like, when it was client server, it's like, you got firewall, we're good. And now it's like, no, that's not good. <laughs> that's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, with the, the mobile devices, this is something that I, that I had to think about constantly, uh, when I was working with Maz360. Uh, Maz360 is a, a, a mobile device management or, uh, enterprise mobility management, whatever the industry people are calling it these days. Um, but you have you're installing this product on on devices that are beyond your control, and um, it it took a long time to educate the developers uh, that even though our product is installed on this device, we don't actually know who was holding that device, and we we still can't trust anything that's coming from that device. You sort of have to continue to treat it as a hostile third party, even though it has your product installed on it. Well, and I'm slightly ashamed to admit that I know that that software works because there have been times when I first got hired at IBM that I did not update my device OS in time and that Mass360 went in full effect and locked my phone down until I, <laughs> until I upgraded. Yeah, but it just cut you right out. Definitely works. Good job. You definitely <laughs> you threat modeled me perfectly. So that actually... Um, is something else I wanted to ask you about. I, I've heard this term before, and I was reading the abstract of your talk, and you mentioned that term, threat modeling. Uh, could you tell me what that is and, and give me some maybe an example? Sure. Uh, so it, at its basic level, uh, I can't take credit for this. Uh, this is from from Adam Shostak, who, who wrote uh, kind of the book on threat modeling. Um, but he, he boils down to threat modeling as uh, it – taking the product that you're working on and saying, what are we doing with this product? What can go wrong with that product? And then evaluating whether we're doing a good job at stopping that from happening. Um, So basically, if you think of a a product like, uh, like an enterprise mobility management software, you go through a process where you look at who's using it, uh, both both the people that we want to use it and someone who might just find a phone on the street that has it on there uh, and what kind of damage they can do when they're using it, uh, both in ways that we intend them to and in unintended ways. Um, and then it, what kind of damage can they do? Can they steal passwords? Can they take control of the phone? Can they take control of the, the backend server? Um, 
just kind of go through these, like, you know, be as crazy as you want and then come up with all those ideas and then dial back to what the most re realistic threats are um, and then figure out how are we going to prevent those threat actors from making those things actually happen to us. Uh, and then on in some sort of ongoing process, um, evaluating whether we're doing the right thing, whether we're still doing enough, doing too much. Uh, and in that way, you know, you come up with a document that says, here's the ways we think that we can be attacked. Here's what we're doing about it. And that kind of represents your threat model. And you mentioned that especially because you're doing it for products that you have access to the source code for, you almost have this like unfair advantage. Hopefully you can stay one step ahead that way, right? Because you, you have a little bit extra information. So you're able to give the system a harder time than someone without that information potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's kind of two different, uh, I don't even know how, what you would call them, factions maybe. There's, there's people who are red teamers and they're sort of like what you think of as the traditional hackers. They, they basically just try and find a way to break into a system. Uh, you know, if, to, to put it in the context that I know as an IBMer, uh, we have a, a group called X-Force Red. And they, they're our red team. So customers hire them to try and break into their system. As penetration testers, we're actually trying to find as many vulnerabilities as we can in the system. Like we want to fix, help them find all the bugs uh, that there possibly could be and so that they can fix those bugs before they, you know, ship out to the customers. So sometimes we'll find bugs that there's no path to it from outside the system. It's not really exploitable, but if you can get into the system, then you might be able to exploit that and do further damage. Um, so your red team might not actually find those things because it's not visible to them uh, as outsiders. Uh, so we get to have a little bit more fun kind of, you know, looking under the hood and, and almost cheating, so to speak. You know, I, sometimes I can, I can look on the host system and find a, find a vulnerability and then work backwards to how I can exploit that. Uh, so that's kind of a, a fun little bonus of being in, in, on this particular side of penetration testing. And let me ask you this. If folks are interested in this type of work, what are some ethical ways they can approach it? Uh, because obviously you don't want to, you know, get yourself in trouble to, to learn this. Like, are there, are there paths to becoming an ethical hacker that are not fraught with danger? Uh, there are. Um, there are, especially now, that, that's uh, one of the reasons it took me so long to get started in ethical hacking is that it's, well, just a, a few years ago, even it was hard to find ways to learn and practice it uh, in any kind of safe way without setting up your own lab, which can be, you know, difficult and costly. Uh, but now there's lots of websites that offer free and low cost ways to, to practice. Uh, there's one called overthewire.org uh, and they have several different series of problems uh, that you could just log in and, and test them uh, and, and learn and understand the different techniques behind uh, hacking, but in a safe way. They're not going to come after you uh, just because you tried to, to hack their puzzle. Uh, another good one is Hack the Box. Um, I think it's hackthebox.eu. Uh, that's a, another one where they have uh, a whole bunch of different machines up and you you VPN into their network and you have to capture the flag on, on different machines that they have hosted. 
that's kind of an interesting one because to to get a login to it, like just to register on the site, you have to get through a kind of a small hacking exercise. So it's kind of interesting. So let me ask you your opinion on some pop culture representations of hacking. And I guess this is going to be like a two-part question. First part is, do you like it? And then the second part, which I don't think is that important, but I, a lot of people love this. How accurate is it? Uh, so the first one is Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot is probably the the most accurate depiction of uh, of hackers and the culture to date. And I think you do you like it? I do. Yeah, yeah. You know i I haven't watched it in a while. I I got sidetracked sometime in season two, and I haven't gone back to it. But I I loved it while I was watching it. So then, my second question, which I must say, there's lots of references to this in Mr. Robot, but 1995 hackers with uh, Johnny Lee Miller and Angelina Jolie. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I haven't actually watched it. I think you should. I'll have to go remedy that. I think you should. I was a little too young to, uh, to have sought it out in 1995. I was, I was too busy watching teenager movies (laughs) at that time. And I just never went back to it. Yeah, I didn't watch it then myself, uh, but uh, subsequently I've grown to love it and I've probably seen it 30 times. I'll definitely check it out. And it's it's a bit, people like to criticize it because it isn't hyper-realistic, but I also think it's, you know, it's a movie. <laughs> it's a yeah. movie. It doesn't always need to be a uh, faithful reproduction. What about some other ones that, and anything... Is there anything else inspirational like that? Uh, that that you're anything that you find that is like, oh yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Like, well, I always loved sneakers, um, and I I love it even more now because uh, it, it's so old school. There's a lot of like really, like almost classic hacks depicted. You know, when she has to record him saying certain phrases so that they can get through the voice activated lock later, like. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's just such a, a a great little thing that that she has to go through in order to to set up that hack, if you will. And just like that whole movie is just full of great stuff like that. I always love that one. That is a great film. I have a funny uh, story about that. Um, I was at OzCon and the NSA had a booth there, so I went up to them. They have a community team that was pre-cleared to talk to me, so they were a guest on our podcast and. My original idea for the intro was this whole reference about that movie and this and that. And they had one of their senior uh, developers there and he, you know, he, he'd go by no, he, he didn't, he wouldn't say his name kind of thing. He was in this anonymous character and he just under his breath, he's like, that's too much. He was like, he's like, you're overdoing it, man. And I didn't end up using that part. He had seen it too. He knew the movie. <laughs> Uh, that was actually a really interesting interview, and um, they were talking about their, maybe you've uh, checked it out, but their Ghidra, which is like a, a decompiler software. Um, and they actually have like 30 to 40 different open source projects, which... Yeah, I have played with Ghidra a little bit. This has been a great conversation. Let me ask you this. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or anything you'd like to uh, impart to our uh, viewers and listeners? Well, I mean, I think one of the most important things to remember about anything related to security is that it's never finished. 
you know, I, I used to, to joke with a friend, you know, in the in Arrested Development, Job used to, when he was doing his magic tricks, he would say, you know, it's, it's not a trick, it's an illusion. And I always used to say that perfect security, it's not a trick, it's an illusion. There's, there's no like trick you can do to get yourself there. It's an illusion that you have to constantly talk yourself out of seeing, that, that you have to realize no matter how much you've done, there's someone like me, but even smarter, who will figure out a way to get around it or get through it or make it do something that you never thought it would do. Uh, so you just, anyone who's either developing or writing security policy or defending systems, um, never stop learning and never stop expanding what you're doing to protect the products and the people that you're working with and for. That sounds like great advice. And yeah, it's like you have to be vigilant because it's, it's ever evolving. Yep. And it's amazing how much you, you have to keep learning. Uh, I've, I've actually gone on a binge uh, the last few months, kind of, kind of during the, the COVID-19 quarantine, where I'm going back and reading textbooks on, on tools that I've been using forever and learning new tricks and things they do. I, I read a book cover to cover about SSH and you know, learned a couple new tricks in that. It was kind of crazy that I, you know, I use this tool every day, but it, there's things that it can do that I, I and some of my colleagues on the team didn't know it could do. So uh, you, you just never stop learning. Uh, the, the moment you stop in this business is when <laughs> you're going to get pwned, as they say. Thank you for your time today, Troy. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Thanks, Luke. 